0: Jambo, everyone, and thank you, as always, for tuning in to Radio Harambe. I'm Dave McBride, broadcasting from the Radio Harambe studios. And uh, joining me in just a few minutes is going to be Safari Mike, and we have a special guest who we're going to be talking to today. This is going to be the first part of a two-part podcast, two-podcast part interview, I don't know how you say that right, uh, with the great Joe Rody. Uh, today we're going to talk mostly about his, what we call his origin story. How he got to be where he is in Disney and uh, the things that made Joe who he is and therefore made the Animal Kingdom what it is. And then in the next part we're going to talk a little bit more about Joe the Explorer. We're going to cover both of those topics within each section here so you can hear a little bit of exploring, a little bit of Animal Kingdom in each half. But that's sort of the uh, how I broke it up here as best I possibly could. I want to remind you before we go to this to uh, join us on Facebook facebook and twitter at radio harambe you can find mike uh, on twitter at jombo everyone you can also follow us on instagram at disney's animal kingdom and please feel free to rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever you get your shows and if you have any questions you want to send directly to us you can do so jombo everyone at gmail.com uh, as i'm about to say when we started this podcast this next interview you're about to hear is exactly what we were hoping to one day accomplish and uh, I cannot thank Mr. Rhodey enough for taking the time to join us uh, and talk about all of these things it was the thrill of a lifetime for both of us so here is our first part interview with Joe Rhodey right after this very short little break Well, Mike, I think however many years ago, this is the entire reason why we started this podcast, what is about <laughs> What is about to happen here on this episode. Uh, joining us now is Joe Roddy, Mr. Roddy. you need no further introduction than that, but thank you so much for joining us, for one thing. Sure. My pleasure, guys. Now, the, what we wanted to start, we got a whole lot to, to talk about, but I want what... Well, we had Nadi Gabashi on recently, who is the singer for the Buradika band. Um, and I said to him what I'm going to say to you. To us, Disney Animal Kingdom people, you are a superhero. You are a part of the Justice League of America here. So I think it's only appropriate to begin by asking you your origin story, because people always want to know that about you and your work. And I think the question that I have is... Like what came first, Joe the brilliant uh, designer or Joe the world explorer? I mean, you know, how did this all come to be?
1: (laughs) That was an interesting question. So, if we're going to talk about (laughs) origin story, okay, why, why, why am I this guy? Um, That there's little threads uh, that I think end up being relevant. uh, part of this origin story, I do think, has to do with growing up in Hawaii, which especially, you know, 65 years ago, very different place. Right. Uh, so a sort of unusual childhood in a tropical place, in a weird old house, lots of, lots of attention to tradition and legends. You know, there's no dangerous animals in Hawaii, so you can wander off into the jungle, like this weird Jungle Book jungle, there's no tigers, so a little tiny kid could go do that kind of thing. So that's a thread. I'm a little kid who grew up in Hawaii and was able to wander off looking for frogs and lizards in the forest. That guy. Then the second thread is uh, my dad was a cinematographer, uh, and he worked on a lot of... um, science fiction related stuff uh during an era when there was quite a bit of that stuff with built sets and i as a kid had the ability to be on all of those built environmental sets at a very formative time in my life okay Um, the way was also trained as an actress and that's so i grew up in a household where um being an artist or being associated with the arts or being creative rather than being sort of an odd thing that you might have to talk your parents into being was just what everybody was. Uh, and um, so that's part of an origin story. Um, and then the other piece of it is probably, uh, I, have a, I have a classic liberal arts education, which is really probably what I used more than any of my artistic skill through my whole career. Uh, And I was a teacher for a few years, which is also a skill that I think I used throughout my whole career. And all of that stuff gets you to this moment when one of the executives of the Disney company in 1980 walks into my classroom and is like, you're wasting your time here, son. You should be working for Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, And off I go.
0: Okay, so but, why are we
1: teaching? What, yeah, after, why you, did this guy walk,
0: you, 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 you. walk into your classroom?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I happen to be teaching um, his kids art, art oh, history, oh, theatrical right. set design, things like that. This guy's name was John Sovich. Uh, um, I think he was VP of uh, what then was the engineering division. Um, anyway, anyway, uh, he saw something um because i didn't see it Uh, to be honest i had barely no one had ever heard of imagineering and i thought i would end up with a career somehow in film you know and so while i was teaching i also was apprenticing in the scenic artist guild because los angeles i could do that um but i got this job i got this entry-level job in the model shop um quickly discovered I was not particularly good uh, at, as a model builder. Uh, and so I knew, oh, if I'm going to keep this job, I need to find something I am better at than this. Uh, and that led me to uh, more two dimensional work. Uh, and the two dimensional work eventually led to concept illustration. And concept illustration led to concept development. And that's when everything kicked in. And it was like, oh, I can actually contribute here. I have some value I am bringing to the table. Uh, And those are where my real opportunities started to emerge.
0: I, I think the question, another question I would have just to sort of paint the picture of all this is, I have two, like, sort of very different ideas of what Imagineering was, right? I, I, I know the history of how it became. I know the Disneyland Imagineers. I know the the nine old men. I, you know, I we know all of that. And then there is this much bigger thing that's alive now. In 1980, when you guys stepped in to do EPCOT, um, what was it like? I mean, what 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 was what was Imagineering like? What was the walking in from a teaching job to this to this? profession. What must have that been like? It was really
1: very exciting on the one hand because it was bustling. I mean, by 1980, stuff is happening. You know, they're starting to build the big model of the Epcot uh, the model the big model of the whole park which is like the size of you know, way somebody's living room. This giant model in the middle of the model shop Many other models, physical models, are well along the way. Everybody in the building is working, working, working on this kind of stuff. Lots of people. I didn't um, necessarily recognize the how famous some of these people that were walking past me every day were. Really? Uh, but I in fairly early with Herb Ryman um, and ended up you know at his house talking with him all the time. Um, he was one of the people that was really inside the circle that I was working on. It was it was more loosely organized, I think back then. more crossover uh, skills because it was a smaller place. Um, I mean, you know, it was only a couple buildings that people were in, but it was still a lot of people. It wasn't small, uh, especially then because of all the work going on. So So there was this exciting atmosphere. And then for me personally, it's super intimidating because everybody's pretty highly skilled. I mean, the models they were building as model builders were far beyond anything I had built as a set designer. Um, You know, the illustrators were like film industry level illustrators who had been brought from the film industry. And, And one thing that I think people... Nowadays, it's very hard for people to get into their head is there there's nobody, not a person who identifies themselves as a theme park designer. There is no such thing. There are only professionals come from all over the place with professional backgrounds who have assembled themselves to work on a theme park. But no one has the title theme park designer. There isn't, in a sense, any such thing yet. That title and that idea is an invention of academic training uh, and schools that start, you know, 10 years later almost, training people to be able to do this. But these people were art directors, production designers, interior designers, landscape designers. They were the skill that they brought uh, to the mission. And so that also, it's a slightly different vibe because it's like this gathering of eagles vibe (laughs) as opposed to this um, great traditional institution.
0: So at this point, I mean, you are now uh, one of the world's great explorers. At this point, you're... Brought in to work on the Mexico Pavilion first, correct? If I have that. that. Is,
1: yeah. Well, I was brought in and then I was assigned to work on the Mexico Pavilion.
0: Now, is this your gateway into the world of exploring or had you already kind of traveled to a lot of different places by then?
1: No, no. I mean, I came from nothing. I never had right. three pennies together to make a song like a cricket. So I hadn't been anywhere. I grew up in Hawaii. That's interesting. And that's it. Uh, so I, I had traveled to Europe with my girlfriend who became my fiance, who became my wife. Uh, and that was my big trip. That was where I'd been to the classic places you go with a backpack in Europe. Um, and, uh, The Mexico Pavilion, when I joined, they had just had their big research trip to Mexico. But you have to remember, I was such a junior person, I never would have been on that trip in the first place. Okay. So so it was quite a few years before I was involved with a research trip. And I would say quite a few years before I took an adventure trip to go someplace challenging and remote. Um, the good thing about the Mexico Pavilion was they had a um, staff archaeologist on the team, a guy named John Paul. And, and he was very inspirational to me because he, of course, was a full-on real field exploration archaeologist guy with all kinds of great stories. And it got me very interested in pre-Columbian archaeology. And of course, since that time I've been to quite a few pre-Columbian sites, some very remote. So, so yeah, go ahead.
0: So, so my question is you you start here in in doing these things. I know you were part of uh, the Captain EO film. That must've been interesting. Um, you know the Norway Pavilion. You did, the, of course, the Adventurers Club, which is a big favorite of Mike. Still pines away that it's not there every time he walks past it. And um, I wonder how. Well, it
2: was a great place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how then you sort of got into animal kingdom stuff like from these things through imagineering how does do you, do, are you moving up the ladder as you do these things or is it are people pitching things like producers do for films is it, you know what i mean like how, how does it come to the point where you get from one project to another or you become a head of a project like you did yeah. you know only what a few, probably 10 years into your tenure right
1: right so uh, everybody's pathway through the company is different and it does depend on their skill and their background and their opportunities and their network. Um, now I'm going to go back to the first is I started this company with very little knowledge of what it was or what it did. Very little ability to compete in the core product. There's all kinds of people devoted to this core product. And so extremely difficult to compete with them because I'm behind the curve in terms of just learning all that stuff, right? However, there was another thread of development of sort of consider it to be non-aligned projects. Projects that weren't about core product. Uh, And these started, you know, after Epcot. Uh, There was this wave of this right about the time Uh, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came in. Some of that turned into things like what became Pleasure Island. And there were many other proposals that didn't get built that were in that category. I was in that group. So I tended to be in this group of people who were working on things that were not aligned with core product. So start there. That means that the skills base that I am developing is also slightly sideways so even as i'm moving up slowly with more responsibility i'm also slightly moving sideways because of the things i'm working on um and that leads to the point where i mean the adventurous club gets made which at the times a very strange place I mean, it's, it sort of brings a lot of stuff that now people are more familiar with immersive storytelling, living characters, uh, non-linear plot, you know, uh, just high high levels of guest involvement, um, you know, uh, all that. I mean, I came out of theater that was a little more familiar to me. I was something that myself and the people who worked with me were like, hey, we could do a thing like this. Um and not long after that came this opportunity to work on what was only referred to as that animal project. And um, I thought it was interesting and a lot of people didn't because they it was non-core and, and didn't really stand a snowball's chance in hell of ever happening. Um, or they never would have given it to a person as junior as myself uh, in the first place. Now I had by that time, some reputation as a thoughtful, intelligent person who could get something done. But you know, the budget for the Adventures Club is probably less than the overall lighting budget for Animal Kingdom. <laughs> uh, so so really, I think I was able to take it on because uh, because it was such a dark horse outlier. And so there's little harm done in giving it to this junior designer who put together a team of other rather unknown junior designers uh, to examine the idea to see. Really, I think at the beginning, it had more to do with let's see what these young people can do, not let's see whether we're going to build this park. You know what I mean? Almost like a workshop. Um, And then it took on momentum, and lo and behold, it got done. Mm -hmm. And that process is what really, if we're talking about an origin story, back to origin story, that's the origin of how everything else ever happened. It's that moment when it looked like, oh, hey, they're going to
2: do this. Was that around the time of the, you you hear the famous story where you brought a tiger into a meeting? (laughs) Is that... Is that the is that the point where you know we you thought this was really going to happen? No, no, that's much earlier. Okay, That was just to get permission to work on it for another. Year. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but before we before I get into before I let Mike loose on the Animal Kingdom stuff, I got one little just thing I want to back up a bit on pleasure on uh, on the Adventurers Club. I find it fascinating that somebody who would end up in the Explorers Club. Um, would start one of his first projects being this Adventurers Club thing, which, boy, for those of us who've never been in the Explorers Club, this is what I imagine it looks like. (laughs) So, I mean, was there always this this, um, yearn in you? There's always this feel for you to want to be able to... to, you know explore to go and see different things go adventure like these guys did in this crazy adventurers club i mean what was the what was you the know, in, what was the inspiration so many, behind that you know
1: yeah so many levels there's so many levels to this answer so if we're going to talk about this we'll talk for a few minutes about this okay so the adventurers club did not start out as an adventurers club it was the core premise was that it was going to be a kind of magic club and that the adventure aspect was kind of a art directorial gloss over the top of it, and it mutated into a kind of comedy improv club during design because the magic part—if you think back, there were all these weird little magic tricks in the club—didn't right? Wasn't as yeah, yeah. Um. So. So there's that. Now. I have always been an avid student of natural history, of history, of anthropology, of archaeology, paleontology. I read constantly. I, I know people who are in these fields. Um, so I brought that level of knowledge to the club. Like, we could make a place like that. But if you remember, the Adventurers Club was also a satirical deconstruction of the idea of an Explorers Club. It was a poke at that whole thing. In a sense, of anti-colonial Adventurers Club, right? Because all the Adventurers are weirdly inept, you know, and uh, they're all you know, they're all suffering from the curses of the objects that they brought back, you know, from all over the place. There is a very dark humor in the sort of curatorial aspect of that club and what these things are and where they come from. And people have to remember that Adventurers Club was not necessarily a celebration of adventurers. It was kind of a, a slightly um, it was a satire. Um But it worked at a different level because it was so strangely real. I mean, many, 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 many of those objects were real. How do I know they're real? Because I found them and I bought them. Um, And then mixed in with them. And by the way, some of them came from my old college dorm room. I mean, because there was very little money. (laughs) Maybe I can use this statue, you know, how about this, like, indian canopy that used to go over my bed in my dorm room um so there's a lot of that too and then and then that whole idea the other thing and then i'll stop because you know it's gone the adventure club as much as it seemed to be about adventure what made it work was the way in which it was about being a club belonging being welcomed in being folded inside the story having people actually react to you. You have to remember, and this fed through to Animal Kingdom, that we were playing against the form. We knew that the people who were coming had spent a day in a theme park. And so a day in a theme park is going to bring all kinds of expectations with it. For example, if there's a robotic thing on the wall and it comes to life and it starts talking, it's not talking to me it's gonna deliver some kind of speech. Only in this case, that thing on the wall would come to life. It already knew your name, it knew that you were engaged, it knew that the person sitting next to you was your boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, So you're having a conversation. So that, nowadays, is no big deal. But back then, that was super, super surprising and triply surprising if you just spent the day in a theme park. If you spent a day in a theme park, you bring the presumption that the things you are looking at are fantasy things that were made by clever designers in shops and put together uh, to make a fantasy environment. Yet in this place, a whole bunch of that stuff was really, really real and you could walk right up to it and it was obviously, obviously real. Um, Most things that happened back then in a theme park were scripted uh, and they did the same thing You know, for that was part of what was appealing about them. And here you had this open-ended improv, kind of a script skeleton where the show could move all over the place. And suddenly you're involved in it and in the middle of it and, you know, participating in it. So none of that stuff is a big deal now. Immersive theatrical storytelling is not a big deal now. Um, And, you know, living characters, not a big deal. Um, But... Back when this was happening, especially for people at Walt Disney World, especially people that spent a day in a park, it was really, really a surprising departure. And then on top of that was the way in which you were welcomed in, ceremonially made a member. You could feel like you really were inside. And that's why I think why people liked it so much, because you can go anywhere and see like masks and statues
0: I agree that that is why no. I, that's why I liked it. Go ahead, Mike.
2: Yeah, the club was great. Now, when you, when you were getting, did you did you do any traveling for the club? Are we I want to get to the exploration aspect right. of so, you know the animal kingdom and stuff. But right during this period when I was designing
1: the club it was simultaneous with the period of time when finally I was starting to go anywhere. Right. So by then I had been on two of the research trips for the Norway pavilion, which was not yet open when I started working mm. on the club. So I'd been to Norway. Uh and the, the first Norway trip was pretty adventurous. I mean, we went way up beyond the Arctic Circle to uh Sami territory. That's a whole story. Um and uh and then I had been to Japan, and I had, and during the design, I had gone and spent six weeks in Indonesia, um, and I did buy some of the stuff uh, that went into the club on that trip, uh, and that uh, was Bali and Java, uh, but parts of Java that people don't normally go to, um, and a period of time when you could still consider going to Bali to be kind of adventure travel, not just kind of luxury tourism. So that was the beginning of of my personal uh, and work-related adventure travel, uh, and then exploration and travel. It's all sort of happened simultaneously when the earrings started, same period as <laughs> It all starts in this period of time. By the time the Adventurers Club opens in 89, I have the beginning of the earring that now is my celebrity companion.
2: Right <laughs> <laughs> now, when you were going to to Bali and, and places like that, I guess was this like in the early '90s? This is before no, no the '80s, the no '80s. Mid- so this uh, is way before you even like even Animal Kingdom was a, uh, a a potential project. I mean, when you were going there, were you were you contemplating like what eventually? Because I know there's a lot of Bali. In Disney's Animal Kingdom. So here's what happened.
1: So I go to Bali. I wanted to go to Bali since I was like 12. Um, From one photograph in this psychology book. I can't remember the name of the book. It's not Man and His Symbols. It's some other book. Way of the Sacred. So anyway, so I had this image in my head of like Bali, where that thing is, which is weird masked dance with this character with long fangs and long hair and long fingernails. I didn't even know the name of this character, wherever that is. I got to go there. Um, and so Bali. Uh, so I go to Bali. And while I was there, became aware of the profound level of artistry Um on the island and thought, wow, there are thousands of artists here. Thousands of them. There ought to be a way to do something with this, right? Uh, And so, and that's it. Then it goes to sleep in your brain until the opportunity pops up later, right? So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Come back from that, Adventurers Club opens, I did some work on the second pass of the Mexico gallery, which was a big mural of a big Mayan ceremony. Uh, And I built these models of Mayan ball players and anybody old enough can remember when that was the presentation in the Mexico gallery. And that got me to the point where it was time to like take on another big assignment. And that was, that was opportunity that came up with, um, Animal Kingdom, uh, which, again, was such a long shot, uh, uh, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, And so once Animal Kingdom started, pretty quickly we realized we have to go see the stuff. We don't know. We have to go. We don't even know what it means to say you're going to try to make something look like Africa What Africa? Which Africa? What landscape? You know, what is that? Um, And that's when that set into gear uh, a design that was linked at the beginning to research. Very often when we would take our research trips, it was more towards the end to gather um, details. But in this case, it's like we don't even we don't know anything. We right. need to take trips to understand even what there is to talk about, um, and so these were front-end loaded research trips.
2: So, what made you pick? I mean, how did you go about the process of saying we got to go to, say, like East Africa or or Kenya or wherever you wound up going? I mean, how did, or, that, how did that decision process come about?
1: Right. So you start from anyone who knows how I work. I mean, I work in a very literary pattern. So I'm starting with thematic ideas. What what do we want these animals to even be about? What ideas do we want you to take away from the encounter with these animals? And where would that send us? Um, so, you know, we know one of the almost obligations is to get people to understand that animals equal land. When you see an animal, a wild animal, is evidence of the existence of hundreds of acres or hundreds of square miles of land. That's why that animal exists. So there's a link between the animal and land. So it begs the question, we know, We know that the classic image of Africa is the big open grasslands of the Serengeti. And we know we cannot replicate that because we don't have hundreds of square miles. We're going to have some number of acres. So we need to figure out what other land where you see animals is replicable in that way that is scaled to something that would still look real if you saw it when we do it, which will be even smaller than the stuff that we see. And so the first trip, which is a long rambling reconnaissance trip to go, maybe it's this, maybe it's a river canyon, maybe the whole thing is one river valley. Maybe it's a volcanic crater like ngorongoro maybe it's a forest with little clearings we, we don't even know what can we even do here how do we create these boundaries what do we if we see what's real it, it'll help us go oh yeah that could be a, a way of keeping one side up for that could be a bound that could make a berm so that's kind of how it all started and then that gave us enough fuel to get the idea up And then it becomes more focused on, okay, the rock guys need to go look at rocks, because those rocks, the Kopi rocks, they don't look anything like you think they look like when you see them in a photograph. Um, So you need to go see what these things really are, because it's really different than what you think. That kind of stuff. Okay, now, um,
2: you know, just curious, uh, your background at this point, I mean, you t- you said at the beginning you, you taught art history and stuff like that. Did you get formally trained in art or was it just something that you developed on your own? Well, I did develop on my own. And mm-hmm. I,
1: I, as I said, I have a liberal arts degree from Occidental College, but I was an art major. So, okay. you know, I had some training in art. Um, but mainly I would say I learned on the job. And also I worked as a scenic painter. I started scenic painting when I was, meaning painting big backdrops when I was like 14 years old. So I had a lot of experience working big, Um, but I I don't have a huge amount of formal training. uh, I wish I did because I'm not as good as many other people uh, in our industry and many other people call themselves artists which is why i am so incredibly fortunate that i became a director because then i get to tell people who are better than me (laughs) what i
2: would like to see them do which is perfect now we're going to talk about the 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 prints that were are going to be on sale on september 1st in a minute Mm. um now these were all done from your visit in 1999 to, to to tibet um when you were going to Africa in the early nineties, I mean, were you painting a lot then too, and, and sketching? And I mean, how that work into your exploration? Right. So I always bring a sketchbook. So yes, you not only do
1: I always bring a sketchbook when I'm traveling and all of those research trips involved sketching, sketching's a whole sketching. I'm talking about not necessarily executing full scale paintings. Um, very important. It's very important for your memory. Uh, you remember things much more vividly and concretely when you sketch them than when you photograph them. And so, yes, I had sketchbooks going all the way back for trips that we, uh I would be taking notes, taking sketches, and many of those folded into the park. Now, some of those sketches are sketches from my own trips that I took. So, there's not a big distinct. Feature between I'm sketching on a research trip that Disney paid for. I'm sketching on a trip that I took because all the trips I took are also research trips because that's all I do. I am not a lie on the beach kind of guy. Right. So <laughs> anywhere I go, it's a research trip. Um, so so these sketches. So what's happening now is I'm trying to raise money for the local mm-hmm. uh, community arts workshop in Santa Barbara. Um, there's this great. You know, a lot of times, I I, I live in that area now, Um, a lot of times artists in a place like this are kind of forced way out to the perimeter, to um, peripheral areas, warehouse districts, and they're sort of excluded from access to the middle of town. Um, And even though, you know, Santa Barbara is a very lovely place to be, that doesn't mean that a normal artist who makes their living by making art can afford to be in the middle of that town. So this is a really important part of the community where I live. Um, and they're trying to, uh, complete this facility. And I figure one of the things I've done for a long time, use my art for purposes, wildlife conservation, fundraising purposes, um, Uh, awareness raising purposes, had that whole series of prints that I did for the Disney Conservation Fund for years. And so essentially this is using art for a purpose. The purpose is to raise money for this arts community. So there's four of these um, paintings that I did in the field in the Himalayas uh, using only local pigments that I could grind there from local colored clays. But they all happened to be relevant to Expedition Everest, uh, which happened almost immediately after I got after the, uh, back from that trip. Probably by the time I was coming back from that trip, we were already having the first beginnings of conversations of what was going to become Expedition Everest. So anyone who looks at these sketches of a mm-hmm. short very similar to the one that now sits along the edge of the lake, you know, a ruined Tibetan-style fortress on a hill, uh, reminiscent of the one that sits, uh, you know, on the approach to the mountain, Carved sure. window and stone wall. These are very familiar images, but they're not from the park, and they're not necessarily from the research trip. They came even before that, but they are part of what helped you go, oh, we could do it like this. We could make it be this way. Because I'm sure we could get that built. Um, so they're connected in that way. They're connected to um, real exploration. I was, I was uh, pretty early um, in my first trip to this region, uh, where I also painted. Um, one of the early um, um, people who didn't live there, uh, who were able to get a permit from the government to be in uh, this area called Mustang, Mustang. Um, so anyway, so that's what these things are. These prints will go out, and I think they start selling them on September 1st. Uh, mm-hmm. And and then they'll roll through the month and sell them, and it'll raise hopefully raise some money uh, for the artists of the community where I now live
2: and work as an artist. So that's a cool thing. Yeah, they are for, – for people who are interested, Dave, let me just give the go information ahead. real quick. Uh, you want to go to sbcaw.org backslash roadie, and you'll see the, the four prints. And uh, as Joe just said, they're on sale from September 1 through September 30. And uh, believe me, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see I'll, – I'll plug it left and right uh, during the month of September <laughs> so that you can uh, just just look at my Twitter and you'll find it. Don't worry about it. Um, well, oh, go if, ahead. if it
1: works. You know, if it works, we'll do it again. You know, I mean, we're gonna yeah.
2: see—is is this a
1: thing? Does it work? You know, all of that. So I'm doing that. You know, that's cool. I, I'm uh, I'm gonna be at D23 uh, uh, because I um I'm gonna be on a panel with uh, Marcy Smothers, who wrote 100 Disney Adventures, which is just coming out. Another book of adventure. That's another adventure theme. So there's all this stuff. It my my life has become a little more focused on the explorer adventure side. Uh, You mentioned earlier, I am a member of the Explorers Club, uh, which has its headquarters in um, New York City uh, and is exactly what it sounds like, a real Explorers Club. And I'm co-chair of an initiative there uh, called Explorers 50, which is finding people around the world who we believe should be members of the Explorers Club and bringing them in to expand the idea of exploration. I just got back from five weeks in Africa. Um, so so the exploration side is is uh, really vital uh, right now. And, and I don't like to, I like to have purpose. I, I like the idea that you can take uh I guess I'd say it like this. It's there's not a logical straight line from being an artist to having wildlife conservation impact or having societal impact. You have to make those things happen. Um there's not a logical straight line from deciding to build a theme park to having a global Wildlife conservation organization. You have to make those things happen. Um, And so you can make them happen at all kinds of different scales. Um, With Disney, you can make them happen at a gigantic scale. Um, And then when you're on your own, you make them happen at a personal scale. Uh, But you're making them happen. You have to make them happen. They don't just happen.
0: Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Check your feeds for the next part of this amazing interview with Joe Rody. Until then, for Safari Mike, I'm Dave McBride. Quaharini, go well, and thank you for tuning into Radio Harambe.